Today's scripture reading is from Luke 2, 25 through 35. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ. Thank you, Josh. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be here with you um, as we enter into this Advent season for our second Sunday. My name is Paul Lim. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my day job is I teach at Vanderbilt University as a professor of history of Christianity, and I also serve here as a scholar in residence, which means every once in a while I get to preach uh, and teach on a regular basis, and it's been a great delight uh, working in both these spaces. So, As we look to the word of the Lord, let's pray one more time. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for giving us your servant, Simeon, who, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke truthfully about you and truly about you. And as we have the huge blessing, incomparable joy of having his testimony recorded in the scripture. As we wrestle with your word now, may, your, may the same spirit who moved Simeon to speak enable us to listen, speak, and act in such a way that through it all, you'll receive our glory and we will receive that indubitable certainty of knowing that we were visited by you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to begin by talking about a scene from this movie, A Few Good Men, which Tom Cruise plays the role of a military lawyer when he calls for Colonel Nathan Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, to the stand as a witness. And Nicholson, out of exasperation, when prodded by Cruise, answers by saying, you want to know the truth? You can't handle the truth. Some of you may remember that particular scene. I want to warn us that many of us won't be able to handle the truth of what will be said here, unless, of course, the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of our hearts to see what He desires us to see and understand and love supremely all over again. I want to apologize as we begin the sermon today. I should have notified the worship planning team that our text was from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 to 35, not 25 to 35. So if it is okay, if you have your phones or Bibles, let's open that text up again. 
I'd like to read verses 22 and 24 in order to provide us with a better historical context to the narrative of Jesus and provide clues to his identity and the ultimate plan of restoration of cosmos that God had in mind with the coming of Jesus. Verses 22, 23, and 24 of the same chapter. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. That's it. Life is full of paradox, and it seems that God's economy is particularly riddled with that sometimes. Here is paradox number one, which has become insuperably perplexing that some people have given up on believing in God as a result. If God were to intervene most decisively and definitively in our affairs of salvation, if God wanted to make a grand entrance, how would he do it? What kind of people would he choose? What kind of nation or country would he visit and use that as instrument of redemption? Because as we will see, there's a real paradox in what God does. As we have read these three verses, 22, 23, and 24, in addition to our given text, it speaks about this purification rites, and it also tells us about the economic state of Jesus' parents. A pair of doves or two young pigeons is actually a prescription given in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 8, and that was given for families that could not afford a lamb. I want you to think about that. Jesus' parents could not afford a lamb, so they had to settle for two young pigeons. It tells us that Jesus came from a poor background. When God, who is capable of all things, omnipotent, knows all things, omniscient, when God wanted to make a splash and make entrance into this world, his mode of entrance I think is quite perplexing for many. He has his eternally begotten son, the co-equal word, himself be born in a poor family, so poor that they could not afford what most middle classes in first century Jerusalem could afford. In what ways does our contemporary Christmas madness help us to understand the fact that Jesus born in a lower stratum of the socioeconomic strata of first century Jewish culture. In other words, and to put it in our con contemporary context, Jesus was more likely to have lived in North Nashville or Antioch rather than Upper West Side of Manhattan or Belmede. More likely from Grundy County, which I found last night is the poorest county in terms of per capita income than let's say Williamson County. You know what else? Look with me in verse 25. Here we are introduced to the central character, Simeon. He was righteous and devout. And it says he was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I want you to think about those three words, consolation of Israel, for a good bit today. 
consolation of Israel. What does that mean? We don't normally, do we, talk about consolation of America. We here in the U.S. don't need much consolation, perhaps, as a nation, because we are the toughest and the best and most powerful and influential country in the world. As citizens, denizens, and those temporarily sojourning within these shores and lands, we don't really feel like losers. However, this Simeon guy represents those losers of history. They lost their political sovereignty and cultural purity as a result of their exile and Babylonian captivity. Then they returned under the leadership of Ezra. Their temple was rebuilt, rebuilt, is dedicated to God, and then there was a period of Second Temple Judaism during which the chosen people of God were waiting for the Messianic figure to come. This waiting was intense and agonizingly fraught with false alarms and pseudo-messiahs. It is far more than some of us waiting for the Star Wars movie, The Last Jedi, to open in cinemas next week, pales into absolute incomparison. There, they were waiting for the consolation of Israel. Will this person please come? Why would God choose this loser nation, if I can be sort of provocative here, as a unique vehicle to contain the aroma of God's drama of salvation? To get a sort of contemporary sense, it would be sort of a, the fact that God would favor Israel over Babylon or over Rome would be tantamount to God choosing Namibia, Laos, or Suriname over the U.S., China, or Brazil. You might have said, what is Namibia, where is Laos, and where is Suriname? Exactly my point. You don't think of these countries as culturally, politically, economically, militarily significant in the way that Israel was looked upon, especially by their current occupier, colonizing power, Rome. So why would God do that? As we delve into this Advent season of getting ready to shop more and get more and eat more, exercise more and plan our vacations, I want us to ponder the truth of what is here in today's text. For I hope, though prickly they may be initially, that through the help of the Holy Spirit, we will be able to handle the truth. So here's the key, friends. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, the whole thing of Christianity will be nothing but cultural shell that lacks the true substance of Christ of poverty, Christ of dispossession, and Christ of humiliation, as well as resurrection. This kind of cultural Christianity or civic religion was judged to be fake by H. Richard Niebuhr in his masterpiece, The Kingdom of God in America. He lamented about 50 years ago that we worship a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministration of a Christ without a cross. As we shall see, the Holy Spirit speaks through Simeon that the Messiah without a cross, the Savior without suffering and shame, cannot truly offer consolation to Israel or be the light for revelation to the Gentiles. So for the rest of our time, I'd like to think about what the Holy Spirit shows in Simeon's life, as I hope will be the same as we get deeper into the Advent season. So we want us to, I want us to think about what the Holy Spirit shows 
Simeon, and in the same way, in a similar fashion, what the Holy Spirit may be showing us here. Three quick points. Firstly, the Holy Spirit shows that God's ways are not our ways always. God's ways are not always our ways. Secondly, the Holy Spirit shows that the wait, the long wait, is over. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit shows that Christ is the ultimate polarizer, that the Holy Spirit is the ultimate polarizer. So let's go to the first point, shall we? The Holy Spirit shows that God's ways are not our ways. Think with me about this scene. First century Jerusalem temple, we are doing our religious things in there, and we see a couple walk in, and from what we can tell based upon their appearance and certainly based upon what they're bringing with them as a way of purifying and sacrificing to the Lord, you can tell that they're not well-to-do. The baby is about 40 days old, and had it not been for the revelation of the Holy Spirit given to Simeon, Simeon would not be able to tell Jesus apart from another low-class baby who is 40 days old. They're all firstborns. There's nothing particularly distinguishable about Jesus' appearance that will set him apart as, aha, that is the Messiah. Human eyes could not see it. I want you to think about that because the gospel writer Luke tells us this. God, Luke is often called the theologian of the Holy Spirit because he, more than Matthew or Mark or John, talks about the ministry of Jesus and the story of Jesus, couching it with the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see it right here. We see it right here because in verse 25, it says the Holy Spirit was on Simeon. And also in verse 26, it was revealed to, Sim, uh, to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And in verse 27, moved by the Spirit, Simeon entered the temple. Are you with me? Three times the gospel writer is trying to tell us, signal something, that it is without the, without the Holy Spirit, we will see as human eyes will see. We will judge by externals, we will judge by economics, we will judge by education, and we will judge by human standards. And God's ways are not our ways. 1 Samuel 16 actually has a very interesting analogous story compared to that of Simeon and Jesus. 1 Samuel 16 tells us of um, King Saul, who had been rejected by the Lord. And the Lord, Yahweh, is deeply, deeply um, chagrined by the fact that King Saul didn't turn out to be what he was supposed to be. So then Samuel is dispatched by the Lord to go and find the next king for Israel. And he was told to go to the family of Jesse, and he has several sons, and you will find one of his sons to be the next king in line. So Samuel goes and looks at the oldest boy, Eliab, and he says to himself, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. However, the Lord spoke to Samuel and says, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as men and women sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. You see, we judge by appearance all the time. Even as we walk into this sanctuary, 
Even as we go back to our schools and workplaces and our neighborhoods, we are inexorably judging by appearance. And we need this reminder from the Scripture that God does not judge according to human standards and human structures based upon creed, culture, or, or color. In the same way, Luke the Evangelist wants to show the readers that God is often in the business of surprising the established ex- expectations and norms. In just the next chapter, in Luke chapter 3, we read this. And I think this is actually pretty hilarious and powerful um, in the beginning part of chapter 3. I want you to listen. In the f- and I want you to think about whose names. This is the who's who of powerful figures in Rome and Judea. And we'll see what God does with them. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iteria and Trachonitis, Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. You know what just happened? You know what Luke has just done? He has enumerated for the readers seven powerful people, five Romans, two Jews. And what he wants to show is not just merely give you the sort of a parallel account of who was who then, but the punchline of Luke's writing this is to show how God often inverts human priorities. Because the Word of God came to John in the wilderness, who was basically wearing funky and furry clothes and eating totally vegan food all the time. (laughs) How unlikely it is that God will come to this guy out in the wilderness being a hippie and a weirdo God's word does not come to Tiberius Caesar. God's word does not come to Pontius Pilate or even Annas or Caiaphas, the high priest. God's word, surprisingly, comes to John the baptizer, or as my Baptist friends would say, Baptist, who they came right there. God's way of inversion. This is precisely the pattern of God's salvation. In Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, Yahweh says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. We need to leave room for that. We need to leave room for God's surprising work through the Holy Spirit in our own life's journey here. Paul echoes the sentiment of the Hebrew Scriptures when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 27 through 29, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and despised things and things that are not to nullify things that are so that no one can boast before God. God's ways are not always our ways, my friends. Second point, the Holy Spirit shows that the wait, the long wait is over. Verse 28, Simeon took him, took Jesus, 40-day-old baby, okay? 40-day-old, tiny, tiny thing. And he picks him up, takes him in his arms, and praises God. And he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. To which I can honestly say, huh? You know what Simeon is saying? Simeon is saying that now that I've seen your salvation fulfilled in this tiny baby, you can dismiss me. 
You know what he's saying? That means I, I'm ready to D-I-E. I'm ready to die. It must surprise you. It must, in fact, shock you. How many of us are saying as we exit the sanctuary, Lord, I'm ready to die because I've seen you? Right? So we need to wrestle with this. What is Simeon trying to get at? What is it that he saw? What was he waiting for in his life? Then we need to ask ourselves this question. What is it that you anticipate? What do you wait? What are you waiting for as you come into this sanctuary? What are you waiting for now? What are you waiting for in terms of your Christmas gift? Some people may be waiting for new video game or new, I don't know, electronic gadget or some, I don't know, you fill in the blank. How would we have responded for Simeon's in the temple court, having seen that Jesus' child, 40-day-old baby, holding him, and will we say, Lord, now you may dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I was thinking about this passage, and I was thinking about what was I waiting for so long? What were some of the things that I waited for to happen? I think I waited for a while to get married, wanted to get married, and I found my wife, and there was real longing. And there was another longing in my life that was going to college. I didn't finish middle school, junior high, because we switched schools. In fact, we switched countries. I came from South Korea to America at age 15. And the educational system in Korea is such that you go to middle school until ninth grade, and 10th through 12th, you go to high school. So I was about to graduate from middle school, but my family came here in December 1982. And coming to America was really like full of eager anticipation, but more than coming to America was going to college for me. I was really excited that I was going to go to college in America. But I don't know about you, is there any, any middle school students, junior high or high school students who don't like school right now? I don't like school. Can you put your hand up? I hate school. I don't like school. Parents, please close your eyes. My hands are up because I didn't like middle school. I did not like high school. I won't go into all the details, but I hated middle school and I hated high school. So then it created within me this deep longing to go to college. By whatever, I was going to go to college. I was going to go to the best school I could get into. And after a long kind of arduous process, I was going to college in New Haven, Connecticut. My parents were driving me to um, New Haven, and um, so they were, we left from Delaware, and my mom, who uh, got really excited as a Christian, read to me the entire book of Proverbs on the way up, <laughs> asking that I will gain some kind of Solomonic wisdom as a result. That was the last thing on my mind. I was so happy to be leaving home. I said, I'm going to be my own guy. I'm going to say goodbye to Christianity because of all the hypocrisy I saw in my youth group. I was going to be my own guy and whatever I saw of college life. And it's never really a helpful thing when you see movies like Animal House as a way of getting sense about college life. For sure I did that. My dad is dropping me off and my dad says, son, Mom has read for you the book of Proverbs. I have a very short kind of 
encouragement for you. It says, you're now your own man. I can't believe I'm saying this in public, but I'll tell you. He says, do whatever you want, but please don't do drugs. <laughs> Guess as an 18-year-old boy, which counsel I took? Mom's Proverbs, they're saying, do whatever you want, don't do drugs. I'll leave that up to your Christian imagination. <laughs> so for me, there was a real longing to look. I was finally in college. You know, when I think about Simeon saying, I can now die, when I heard that I got admitted to this school and I was, okay, I'm going to be a freshman at Yale, but my dreams have come true. And guess what? In my first semester of studies there, I was pre-med for about two and a half months. I took biology 120 and I got crushed, I got cremated, I got killed. And I remember sitting there thinking, is this what college is supposed to be? I mean, I had all different kinds of notions about college, and I was so excited, and I, I did graduate from the institution fine, and I am proud to be a grad, and so on and so forth. But it was really an experience that there was a kind of a letdown. Yale is a great college, I tell you, but it, in some ways, in many ways, let me down. You see, friends, the thing that you're most ardently waiting for and working toward and most excited about, unless they're anchored in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they're always going to let you down. Always without fail, they'll let you down. Your marriage, in some ways, in many ways, will let you down. Your children will let you down. Your parents will let you down. Your workplace will let you down. Your favorite team, whoever they may be, will let you down. Trust me, I'm from Philadelphia. I know what it means to lose. <laughs> Though the Eagles are a little different right now, but we'll leave it at that. But you see what I mean? You see, and for Simeon, he could honestly say that now I'm ready to die. Because what I've been waiting for, all of my aspirations and ambitions and waiting and waiting, waiting, they have come true in you, Lord, so you can now dismiss me, for I am free. And you see, my friends, the Holy Spirit shows that the wait, the long, long wait is over. As you are finding, seeking to find the thing, as you two and others have sung about, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But it is found, as the Holy Spirit says to Simeon, it is found right here. Part of the reason why I can seem to be saying, you see, in many ways, to be honest with you, and this may surprise you, I'm a functional atheist. And you might be saying, what did he just say? Did he say he's an atheist? Yeah, functional atheist. Let me unpack it for you. And that's, that may even shock you more. While I acknowledge the presence, power, and purposes of God in confession and in theory, but in actual outworking of such confessions, I must say I live as if I'm all alone to make decisions. I might consult with God after I have decided on things, but handing over my steering wheel, no, sir. Part of the reason why I can't seem to be saying non dimitus, as Simeon said, now, Lord, dismiss me. And the beautiful offertory that was sung by Tammy and, and, and Jesse and Paul is that, yeah, it's wonderful because it's abide with me is the same kind of song that is sung in the evening service, even songs. Because as we are going into the night, as we are going into the night of our journey, we say, Lord, you may dismiss me, but abide with me. 
See, part of the reason why I can't seem to be saying, now dismiss your servant, is because I might be waiting for something or someone better than God, or that the joy of salvation is not sufficient, or we want God, but not yet. As Augustine said in his wonderful confessions, he says to God, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. I want to have more fun, so don't give me chastity yet. I might see my relationship with God as a zero-sum game, a transaction where I get my sins forgiven without the corresponding transformation. We want transaction, okay? We want our sins forgiven. But when God wants to meddle with our life and say, I want to transform you into this wonderful image that I have in mind, we say, hang on, hang on, no, 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 that's not what I have in mind. We want Jesus as a backseat passenger or even a cargo in our trunk, but we are so deathly afraid of saying, Jesus, take the wheel. Thirdly and finally, the Holy Spirit shows that Christ is the ultimate polarizer. Polarizer, verses 34 and 35. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. Now let's stop here. You know, so some of the parents, mothers especially, brought their kids to be baptized. Wonderful, beautiful, poignant scene. But what if you're told by the priest or the pastor that this child is going to be a guy who's going to be reviled and revered? He's going to actually die as a state-executed criminal. How would you respond to that? You'd be like, oh, no, I don't want that. Who would want it? And that's precisely what Simeon, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is telling Mary about the destiny of her son. Imagine being Mary and Joseph. You would be really misunderstood about your son. I mean, Mary was no older than, she was probably a teenager, so here's a first century Jewish teenage pregnancy problem, and that's exactly how God enters into salvation history. The quandary of this young man and a teenage girl thinking about whether they should go split bill or not. He's worried that I should not marry her, and God appears to Joseph in a dream and says, do it, it's okay. Yet, humanly speaking, many people in their neighborhoods and the villages and extended families did not comprehend immaculate conception, right? How can you have a baby without having sex? That simply doesn't add up. Certainly not then. We might say, oh, the science is, no, no, still, you need to have, well, I guess I won't go into all the details, but you need to, <laughs> how Mary got to have Jesus was strange, to say the least. Unprecedented, for sure. It never happened. How can a virgin be with child? And so this is where it is, that he become a polarizing figure destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, a sign that will be spoken against. You know what that means? That means that Jesus will be the one who will reveal the true content and the character of every human heart. So if you're here still trying to decide about Jesus, please don't patronize him. Please don't trivialize Jesus. He's not merely a good and wise teacher and a prophetic figure, though he certainly was that, but much, much more. If you listen to Jesus' own self-testimony, he claimed to be someone who, was, who had a unique relationship with God because he came from God. He further said that I have enjoyed this eternal relationship with my Father, and he said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And thus, Jesus is, as C.S. Lewis said, either Lord or the liar or the lunatic. So let's think about all of this together now as we bring this sermon to a close. 
What does this mean? For Simeon, even though he was saying these things that may be surprising for many, he knew that he was not alone. He knew that he was not alone. You know, the Advent season, Christmas season, or the month of December is a tough month for a lot of people, including me. My, my immediate family have come to America 35 years ago, and one by one, they have returned, not living in the States anymore. December, for other reasons, for many of us sitting here, is a tough month. Christmas is a time that we're reminded of the pain rather than the pleasure of families. But I want to tell you, my friends, you're not alone. You know, let me illustrate in a slightly trivial way, trivial way, but it is actually profoundly effective for me. I don't know if some of you are soccer fans here. Any soccer fans among us? Okay, good, right here, front row, there you go. Liverpool Football Club, right? Like Liverpool, you know what their, the, the, the thing says? It says, it has a picture of this kind of bird, right? And you know what else it says? That's right. You never walk alone. I'm getting chills just saying that. It's a football team. Liverpool is like Man U and is one of those most popular football clubs in the world. And their kind of banner says, you never walk alone. And if you want to watch something that's really electrifying, Google or YouTube, does say, you know, Liverpool Football Club, you never walk alone song. It's hundreds of thousands of people singing this song that says, you never walk alone. In a football stadium, you're reminded that you're not alone. In a church, then, it should be more the case that we're reminded that we're not walking alone, that we're not alone. You are never alone. Simeon, though lonely in his testimony because many may not have understood him, but he knew that he wasn't alone. You see, you're not alone. You never walk alone because Jesus, the eternal wisdom and word from God, has become incarnate, being born in a poor family, his parents could not even afford the things that most middle-class first-century Jewish families could afford. So that he will tell you, he will tell me in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit that you never, ever walk alone. Whether you hate middle school or not, whether you're bullied by friends or not, frenemies, or whether you have found this time period of high school years confusing or after college you're feeling like nobody gives me a job, nobody gives me a chance, maybe you're in the sort of twilight of your years wondering, what the heck did I live my life for? You see, my friends, this is the beauty of the gospel. You never, ever walk alone. And I pray that we, as followers of Jesus, will say during this Advent season, Lord, May the Holy Spirit empower me so that I may be the hand, I may be the, the person who would embrace somebody and say, you're not alone. I pray that the Lord will do that because as James Baldwin, this African-American novelist who has this wonderful thing called I am not your Negro, said this, not everything that is faced can be changed, but this is the punchline, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. I hope and pray that you will look at yourself without Christ and find yourself misdirected, misguided, lost, or maybe just happy. Maybe like, I'm okay. But you know what? Until you face things, nothing can change. You need to face yourself in light of that embrace of God in Jesus Christ as the Holy Spirit, perhaps through the sermon, as perhaps through the song, and definitely through the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, that he will speak powerfully and poignantly 
into your soul saying, you never walk alone. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that you're ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. Lord, in many ways I confess that I'm a functional atheist. But at the same time, you remind us that I never walk alone because the Holy Spirit is ever near us and with us, especially as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. May these elements really provide us that sustenance for us to see and take deep delight in Jesus so that we may say, Lord, now you may dismiss, dismiss your servant in peace, for we have seen the glory of the Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.